Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. I've long thought of Mishkan Derea as one of the most unique and fascinating law firms in the world. I was, therefore, delighted to chat with today's guest, Elliot Moss, the primary mind behind Mishkan's brand. Although not a lawyer, Elliot is chief brand officer and a partner in Mishkan, a 600-fee earner firm headquartered in London. This unique combination of roles is made possible by the Legal Services Act of 2007 in the UK. As his job as chief brand officer, Elliot has overall responsibility for brand, marketing, communications, client development, new business, and social impact for the firm. He comes from the world of advertising, working for Leo Burnett and Lagos Delaney. It was here that he first met Mishkan's managing partner, now executive chairperson, Kevin Gold. After a two-year contract with the firm, Elliot stayed on, attracted by what he calls the great volume of intellectual capital in the law. Since then, he's become the first non-lawyer to be named as one of the FT's 10 most innovative individuals. He also happens to have a long-running podcast called Jazz Shapers, where he interviews founders and entrepreneurs on their own professional journeys. It was a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation. Our topics range from the basics, such as the cultural attributes that make Mishkan such an innovative and unique firm. We also veered in a number of more unique topics. For example, the firm recently sponsored a film from The Economist on the Culture Wars, which is not typical for a law firm. We talked about how atypical branding moves are, quote, utterly rational, close quote, for Mishkan. We also talked about why he made the leap from consumer-oriented branding to the law, how he made the case for Mishkan to make him a partner, and what's next for their IPO and how he sold it to his partners. As I said, a wide-ranging conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Elliot, how are you? Thanks for joining. I'm good, Stephen. It's really nice to see you. I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. You're partner and chief brand officer for Mishkan, which is one of the more interesting law firms in the world. You folks really seem to find your own path to success. We'll talk about some of the unique characteristics of the firm here in a minute. But what's unique about the firm's culture and approach that allows you to do such cool and interesting things? I think it's about a collection of radically individual, mavericky people who believe in a bigger common purpose than their own financial well-being or brilliance in um, helping clients, which are being fantastic. Being a great law firm is about having great lawyers. It starts there. And without that, you have nothing. But being a great business in the world of law is a very different thing. And I think that in the DNA of the leadership, and I'll say that, that that is distinct from the DNA of the firm. The firm was born in 1937. This current uh, leadership is only 20, I say only, is only 22 years old. There's something in the way that we have encouraged people to be themselves, to attract people that are radically individual, but that believe in a common purpose, believe in something beyond themselves. We attract those people and then we allow them to breathe. And we, we actually say, we want you to have ideas beyond being great lawyers and, and great business professionals in the world of law. We want you to challenge the status quo. We want you to break the rules. We want you to come with fresh creative thinking every day, not just once a year at a board meeting or in a partner's meeting or in a managing associates meeting. So it's kind of in the fact that 
it doesn't need to be boring because some of what we do is ostensibly boring. I mean, I don't, I'm not a lawyer, but I was going to study law at university and ended up not studying politics. So I don't think the law is boring. Quite the opposite. I believe it's an incredible force for good and an incredibly important thing that underpins modern democracies, as well as, you know, therefore the businesses that do business in them. But we don't subscribe to the view that we shouldn't be doing exciting things that make a difference to where businesses run. So I guess everything is up for grabs every day. And I guess if there's a perpetual revolution, if you are a revolutionary that comes to work every day, that knows that there are things you have to do, but there are also things that you can question. I think if you do that at scale and you give people autonomy, and you have the confidence of your convictions and you think a bit longer term than just do we need, I mean, it's interesting because we'll talk about, you know, law firms going public and things, but you go beyond the short termism, even of the annual profit distribution. If you do those things, then I think you attract a certain person who's going to come up with certain ideas. And then as long as you are true to your word, you get an amazing vibe. And that is what happens. New people join, new partners join, new trainees start, and they are shocked the older people that join the partners, because they say, well, this is not like anywhere else I've ever worked before because you actually are listening to me. Someone came to uh, James Libson and me earlier in the year and then we had a meeting yesterday. He's a, a managing partner talking about an, a, a new idea. And I, I at first thought I wasn't sure. We had the meeting and we're, we're going to be doing something pretty cool from next financial year. That person will go, will go home to their other half and say, I had an idea. I went to them. They questioned it. They challenged it. They made it better and we're doing it. That happens everywhere. And I think if you hire people that you want to hire and you trust them to do their thing in every area, and this is the other thing I think, why is it happening at Mishcon? Why is it continually happening? In every area means in finance. It means in business development and sales and marketing. It means in risk and compliance. It means in people. Everything needs to be brilliant. So if you subscribe to wanting brilliance and you subscribe to autonomy, then you're going to have a well-run business, which happens to be a law firm, which is a long answer to your question, but it's a really important question because it's the one that if you don't ask that question, you're not going to get the kind of firm that we've become and that we have to live up to, by the way, because then the challenge is, are you being radical or is it just becoming business as usual? And that's harder the more radical you are. There's an interesting example of that where you recently sponsored a film from The Economist on Culture Wars, which is a fabulous film, having watched it. That's not a normal decision that a law firm would make, I don't think. Maybe it's more typical in the UK. Well, no, it's not typical in the UK. It's not typical anywhere. But actually, it's utterly rational, as well as a creative leap. And the rational piece is the following, that if as a business, we have identified and we have articulated our brand and our strategy as a brand, the thing that exists in people's minds as the perceptual reality of what Mishkondare stands for. And that to us has always been important beyond being great lawyers. And I still am amazed when people say, well, I don't really subscribe to this brand thing in professional services. I'm like, well, that's why your firm will be only as good as the lawyers in it and it will never go anywhere else. But let's not, I don't, I don't know. I go, so that's very interesting. Thank you for your 19, <laughs> your, thank you for your 1974 view of the world. And um, you can see if you, if you've been, if you've been stuck in a time machine and you are there, that's that's fine with me. But the brand positioning talks about our purpose being we help our clients and our people shape the world's possibilities. We help our clients and our people shape the world's possibilities. That's really important because that is obviously through the lens of the law. But if you're talking about shaping clients and your own people, then you want to be part of important cultural conversations. You want to be talking about issues that matter. So the issues that matter today are culture wars. Issues that matter today is the role of the metaverse. Issues that matter today are freedom of speech. And those issues 
if you serve them up to an audience which can buy your product, can buy your services, or you serve them up to an audience where people watching or listening or reading can refer you, and that's called The Economist, which is where you've, you've seen that film, and I get 5 million, 10 million eyeballs on these films. If that goes back to my strategy, which is about helping shape the world's possibilities, it makes perfect sense that I'm going to position myself as a law firm for the world of business, a law firm with its finger on the pulse, a law firm for the law of tomorrow, what's coming down the line, and therefore going to be differentiated through one strand. You're talking about a film there, and there are many others. And then it's not a weird thing to do. It's actually, well, of course you do that. I mean, The Economist is your audience. The film is about an issue that matters. You're trying to shape the world's possibilities. Thank you very much. So it weirdly, I mean, I've just obviously articulated, you know, I, I would say that, wouldn't I? It's totally <laughs> in line with our strategy in the same way a radio program interviewing founders of businesses is totally in line with our strategy, not just because that's a good idea, but because the audience I reach are my decision makers in the same way that I use the Financial Times a lot because that's my audience and we serve up advertising algorithmically. It all feeds back into that's your strategy. A bit like hiring great people that you give the space to do things. When you do that at scale, when you industrialize your positioning and you have the confidence to do that and you do things which are intrinsically interesting, you're going to be differentiated in the market and you over there in the US will notice a small firm that's going to hopefully turn over, I was going to say $500 million, but today it's going to be $300 million, whatever we are at, we're just over parity. But you know, it's, it's a, we're a very small firm in the schema of the world order of law firms. And yet we're a very big firm because we know from tracking that we don't do that we are top 10 in terms of awareness globally in law firms, which is insane. I mean, it's ridiculous. We're little punks, but that's what happens when you have a differentiated position and you go for it. Is that what attracted you to the, because you started in uh, advertising and you moved over into Mishkan? which didn't, I don't think had the sophisticated branding profile that you've created for it. What was it about that opportunity that caused you to make the change? Because you were with, you were with Leo Burnett, which is a great firm. You were on the management board of the London office. Clearly things were going extremely well. And yet you make this leap into a relatively small, as things go, law firm. Yeah, so it's an easy answer in a way. So yes, Leo Burnett was my alma mater, as it were, and I started fresh out of university as a, as a graduate, as a trainee there, and spent 12 years with Leo Burnett and worked around the world, which I think has also informed my, my worldview, which sounds very lofty, but it means that I, I like difference, I like, I'm a magpie, and I pick up different cultural rifts around, and I think that's where you get interesting ideas. Obviously, culture's all, all about things clashing. I actually then became a managing director of another agency before I joined Mishcon, and that's where I met the managing partner then, Kevin Gold, now our chair. And it was a two-year engagement rather than honeymoon, a two-year relationship, which then ended up in marriage. And the reason it ended up in marriage is because I had, since I was a teenager, wanted to work in the law. I thought I was going to be a lawyer. And it was a bit like coming home to the profession that you kind of thought you might end up in, even though I wasn't a lawyer, obviously, and wasn't going to join as a lawyer. And the confluence of the law, plus the fact I knew Kevin and James, who are both still now equivalent uh, chair and, and managing partner, they were my clients. They were brilliant people who were close friends. Their values are my values. Their intellect is extraordinary. And the transition from the world of communications through to the world of law. And then, you know, he literally said to me, I don't really care what you're called. Just come and help. Just come and help build this business. Come and help run this business with me. And that the attraction was those humans and that business. The attraction was 
I didn't believe that I would have on my epitaph, here lies the man that helped launch Honey Nut Loops in the UK, or uh, it was Pop-Tarts. I've even worked on Pop-Tarts, uh, Steve. I'm giving you culturally relevant references here. Um, and other and, and many other US brands. Procter & Gamble was my biggest client for many, many years. So P&G is obviously a, an iconic company in, in Cincinnati. I went to many times in Chicago and all that. And here I had this chance to do something in a business which was actually much smaller than Lear but much bigger than the business I was working in with people that I really believed in. And it was not because I was miserable in advertising, I wasn't, but it was because I thought, how will I enjoy my life? And will this be more intellectually challenging? And it was. And I was attracted by the volume of intellectual capital. There was great intellect in advertising as there is in any industry. And the advertising industry, whether it's New York or whether it's Chicago, whether it's London, it's full of the brightest people, but there's less of them. There are very few lawyers who aren't really bright. There are very few people in advertising who are really bright. So it was a sort of a juxtaposition of finding more people that were much smarter than me rather than some people who are much smarter than me. And it was the opportunity to just kind of be this weird anomaly. And I've been given space. And I think that's back to the first point you asked around why is this thing working? I've been given the space to say, this is what I think we should do. Obviously, make the case. You can't, you can't do anything in a law firm without advocating your position. But you can convince people to do things. And I've never had a good idea, not back, not once. Hmm. That's an amazing organization for a law firm. It is. I mean, you've got to know how to work it, but it, it is. But what made me join was this is just fun. And the, and the truth is, the other thing is there's different economics involved. And it wasn't for the money, but you can't, you know, anyone ever says it's not, it's not about the money. The money plays a role in there as well. And I suppose I was very young. I was, I say very young, I'm 38. So I probably wasn't that young if someone's listening and they're like 28. But um, I'm very young compared to now, obviously, because I'm hurtling towards 52. But it was probably the beginning of growing up and phase two of life where you go in your 20s, you're just having fun. And I, and it wasn't that I wanted to get serious. It wasn't that. It was more that it just seemed right, Stephen. I can't, it seemed right on a human level, on a philosophical level, on a professional level and on a creative level. And I have, and I thank the stars. I, I think I made the right decision. So you, you evolved the brand over the years, over the, 13 years. I was trying to do the math in my head. Yeah. <laughs> you could tell I'm a lawyer. Yeah. About it. <laughs> I don't want to do the number. Yet. No, we don't do that. Yeah. Keeps the words. Did you come into it with a clear vision and strategy as to how you wanted the brand to evolve or has it been more organic in terms of building off of the culture of the firm and in driving brand evolution? So the first two years of my relationship with Mishkondorea was actually a brand strategy exercise. So the, the initial work on understanding what this brand was and, and socializing that with then 60 partners, we're now 180 partners. That was almost the first 18, 24 months of the relationship. So I came to the firm knowing the kind of direction of travel. But the classic thing that a consultant does outside of a business is say, here's what you should do. It's much harder to then execute and get under the skin of a what does that really look like? So the starting point was, I think I know the direction. The next point was, so how will I manifest this? And then the learning is every day you get seeped in more about the law, more about the areas that you that the firm works in, more about the humans and the culture. And then that hopefully informs rather than distracts you from keeping focused on the big thing, which is the positioning and whether it was then called Mishkondorette, but it's still Mishkondorette's business, but it's personal. So I, th I think the challenge was be true to the big thing. The big thing is about actually believing that a brand has a role to play. A brand will be powerful on your balance sheet. And the next big thing is then, well, how do I bring that to life in a way that really does drive value? 
And then it's about being creative and, you know, I always say take the handbrake off, but take the handbrake off in a really strategic way. So part one of the journey at Mishcon was brand as you might think about it from, from the outside is it's your positioning. But actually when you get into the weeds and you start working inside the law firm, it goes to internal communications. It goes to the way that partners relate to each other. It goes to what kind of investment levels are you talking about? It goes to how you help risk and compliance do their job better in terms of it sounds strange, but that, you know, what matter opening becomes relevant to business development and what you capture and what you don't. Your system for financial billing becomes relevant because that's about how you land the bill. And is that done in an appropriate way that's client friendly, that helps you understand how important, helps recognize how important the relationship is? How do I train lawyers in it, it, for me? Cause brand is about service. It's not just about awareness or connections. Service is really critical. How do I get into the nuts and bolts of? helping us improve and elevate relationship management to the same level as legal management. Suddenly, you realize that the manifestation of brand is not what you thought it was, which is the communications. The, the, the newsflash is, I don't find that bit that difficult. I mean, it is difficult, but once you work with creative people, you know, I've worked with some of the biggest brands in the world, you find great people to work with, you find great writers and great art directors and great web builders and all that. That's the, I say easy, that's the fun bit where you go, that's the idea, let's crack on. The harder bit is a service business full of hundreds of people delivering a service to clients and getting that right in line with what your brand stands for. That's actually, that's a lot of my job now. And then brand spills into M&A. Brand spills into geographic expansion. Brand spills into, if you're going to float your business, if you're going to go for an IPO, what does that look like? And what kind of business IPOs that's a private practice and all those things. So it becomes a lot of other things, but it started with a, I think we know the direction of travel. You mentioned the IPO, which was in, it's been in the news, but you floated the IPO and because of market turbulence pulled it. Talk to me about the correlation between that effort and the brand of the firm. How did those two work together? My job working with JP Morgan, our bankers, was to actually say, this is our narrative. This is our story. This is why we're IPOing. This is what we want to achieve. That's a brand role. And so unusually in this process, I was heavily involved. I, as they say, held the pen working with the bankers and the lawyers and both sides lawyers and all that. So part one of the what interface did the what role did the brand play? It's in the story. And then it's the story to prospective investors and how that works. Obviously working with the management team, but essentially it's that's a really big part of raising money. It's a really big part of any business's life um, when you're looking to raise external capital. You really have to have your story straight, not just what is the business, but what do you want it to become and what's the role of the capital you're about to raise. That's part one. But part two, part two of that is then how are you managing what this story looks like internally? Because you've got to bring a thousand people with you. In our case, it's now 1200. And then putative partners that you might be merging with externally and all these other things. There's a lot going on. And then you've got the media. So the story and the management of the story, both internally and externally, and the openness with which we were asked, we were able to answer questions internally. Because again, the lawyers tell you, and it was funny because I, I kind of went a bit native. Our lawyers were telling us, you can't say that. You can't say that. <laughs> and, and I've got my management going, well, now you've turned into a, I won't say the expletive, the, 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 the lawyer. I'm like, I said, guys, I'm protecting you from yourselves. So the role of the brand there is that. But the other thing that happens is then the orchestration of what this business might become. So my role, which is an, is an unusual role, then becomes part of a group of small people being the architect of, well, if we are going to invest money in our group, can we have a bunch of businesses which are not legal businesses? Where might that go? If we are going to invest money, how much do we need to invest in technology? And whilst I didn't make the final decision about it's 30% of the money we raise on that, 
there's a conversation which then touches on what kind of business are you and what kind of culture do you have? How do you protect culture when you become a public company? All that goes to brand as well. So even though we haven't floated, and I think we are still interested in growth and we are still interested in the role that external capital can play, what form that takes is dependent on all sorts of things, including market conditions. I now sound like our communications advisors. Um, <laughs> but it's, um, um, what, where, we, where we go is where we go. But what it gave all of us was a smell of how a well-run public company needs to look. So again, you wouldn't think it, but the brand person is also involved in kind of governance questions and how we communicate with our board, what we share with the board when we're in the media, all these things start to play as well. So it's been a conversation about how ambitious we are. And inevitably, people come in and go, I'm thinking about doing that. How might we land that story? So it's been both the the substance of the strategy and the articulation of the strategy. That's where brand has been front of the front of that process. And the hard bit, has been, and it, I had to write a chapter in some PR manual a few years ago. The hard bit has, has been not becoming emotionally upset by the coverage when they get it wrong. When a journalist who should know better, a business journalist does not understand the model we're trying to explain to them around what it meant for partners versus what it meant for non-partners, what it meant, you know, all this stuff around, well, it's those guys, the fat cat guys, they're going off, they're going to get a big payday and then they're running away. The opposite was true, is true. It's those things where you go, don't get, you're trying to explain the story. And that's quite complicated because then you get into the financial model. And suddenly I'm there sitting with our CFO trying to help, trying to work with him to construct the story to explain how the brand hasn't suddenly become this bunch of greedy beasts called partners. Actually, we no, no, we're being true to that. We're creating this pot here. We're doing that over there. These, are, So there, it, it's sort of that's the other thing that you play, that the role, you don't want people to think you're suddenly some different entity. And so you become protective. On the one hand, you're offensive around what you're trying to become. And on the other hand, you're incredibly, the brand plays a very defensive role to levels of success that are debatable. It sounds like it's such a complicated story, both externally and internally, because it's you can see how the easy story, because most companies, when they go through the IPO, they're to cash out. A little bit of money goes to grow the business, but it's founders or the or the PE folks trying to cash out. And so that's the first thing I would think that would leap to the minds of your internal stakeholders and the external stakeholders. So it must have been quite a challenge to get the nuanced message, both internally as well as externally. Very hard. And when you say, no, no, we're locking our partners in for seven years, which we we were. And when you say, and everyone will become a shareholder, which they will. And when you say, actually, the money off that's coming off the table day one is not being distributed in the way you might think it will be, but it's actually like this, which it will, which it would have been. You're right. It's really hard because by then someone's already switched off. They go, no, no, no. Those, the wealthy partners are going to make more money and then leave. Right. And, and so unfortunately it goes with the territory because law firms don't float. There are six in the world. You're not even allowed to become a, a public company in the States. So law firms don't float. Law firms don't take external capital unless someone's trying to get rich. And our story was, no, no, we want to be relevant. We believe in partnership. We want to be relevant. And the only way to be relevant is to invest serious amounts of money here, because otherwise we're going to get gobbled up in the middle morass of many law firms. We will have to merge. We don't want to merge. The story was all about independence, which is back to your very first question. We're independent minded. We're maverick. We want to move in our own direction. We believe that the going public was to help us defend that position. So again, most of these questions weirdly come back to why are we doing all these things? It's to be us. And I articulated internally, the IPO is an opportunity to be more us. 
not less us, be more us. So if you want the three-word catchy phrase from that, that guy in advertising came up with, that's what it was. Be more us. And people are like, yeah, right. Now now make me believe that, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you've got an interesting structure as an organization because you've got the Mishkan group where you've got, are they separate businesses? I mean, whether it's brand management or tech or your incubator or your, your e-discovery or your location, are they separate businesses or are they just... Is it a positioning in the market, a separate business? It's both. So some, Stephen, are separate businesses in the legal sense. They're separate LLPs or they're limited companies. And some are not, and they're just part of the Mishkondorea LLP, the mothership. In the new world, as we move forward, we want to create a better governance structure where they may be fully owned, but there's there's autonomy of, of action to a point. I mean, we have when we have a group, we had one recently, when we have a Mishkondorea group meeting, there are... 20 people around the table from the different businesses. And we talk about the portfolio of businesses that are worth X as a percentage of our business. And we want them to be worth X times two within three years. So some are add-ons to litigation or to the private business, but others are genuinely separate offerings in a market to almost not quite separate client bases, but related client bases that may not be clients of Mishkondorea, but some are. And again, that hedge is against legal services. The reason we invest in technology is because we know that legal services will not be delivered the same way within a period of time. And they aren't being delivered the same way as they were five years ago. And the same will be true. You almost have to invest against yourself to make sure that you'll survive. We don't want no Kodak. We don't want to be that business that carried on saying, no, 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 it's never going to go digital. Of course it is. And it will need to go quicker. I still want us to have an interface which is as cool as Spotify or Amazon or or some of the, of the banks I bank with. I want it to be at base. I want it to be online. I want it to be easy for certain services we offer. So you need to invest over there. And therefore, the businesses you create need to have the space to go express themselves. And they do. But the positioning also works for us. Back to story. Of course, it's a great story to go to a, a potential client and say, listen, we, of course, we invest in here. I mean, this is our, these are our lawyers. There are 600 of them and they're fine people. But we've also got these these things over here, which make us better at being lawyers and better at delivering legal services. But they also enable you as a client to potentially take advantage. And in a market which is, you know, in the US, the dollar is super strong, which often happens in these times. And you've got, you know, you've got more energy independence and all that. But in markets which are down in a downturn, insolvency or chapter 11s are going to happen more and more and more. For us, the brand management business is an offset to that, which is, well, your brand may no longer exist over here, but we can invigorate it for very small amounts of money for big upside. Are you interested in which brand owner or which family that owns brands is going to say, no, I'm not. And if you're a family that needs safe harbor, MDR Mayfair, it's a business which then works out how best to structure what you've got left, if that's the case. And there, and it goes on like that. X-Tech is about uh, software development, which is happening in a more prolific way everywhere. How do you ensure it's legally compliant? Who can do that for you? There aren't many businesses that can. So that, that set of businesses is both positioning because it's a great story, but it's hopefully the reality of where the markets are going, both the legal markets and the real world, the economy. You've sort of answered this implicitly in what you just talked about, but how do you make the investment decision in these particular businesses as opposed to there's a range of things you could be doing. You've selected these groups and I presume perhaps we'll do more in the future. What does that decision making process look like? So we have an investment committee. We have a lot of, so there's an investment committee that will take the first level of the proposal. And then that, if that proposal makes it through, then it goes to the partnership. And so there's a constant, there's a number of us that are constantly looking at research in the marketplace opportunities that come to us, weighing them up and then putting investment proposals together. 
So it's not the same as a PE house that goes and looks at 10 potential prospects in the world of health tech. I mean, that is clearly a vertical. There'll be experts in there. That's all they do. We're a bit broader than that. And so the brand management opportunity was created in this instance through me and someone I've known for one of my closest friends for 40 years, who just had an event, was in one of the biggest in the world and said, I want to go again. I don't want to do that. There's a different way of doing it. What do you reckon? And of course, for us, the connection with our intellectual property business, our reputation business, our cyber business, it was a no-brainer. There'll be another instance where one of our own people will say, I'm a corporate lawyer who loves technology and blockchain and AI. We're missing a trick here. I think we should create one of these. There's another one that says, I've been doing this for 30 years. We haven't called it purpose, but it is purpose. It is ESG. I want to do this, and now I need to build the business. So it's a case-by-case with people that are informed in their own verticals, and then it goes through a process which is both investment and then sign-off. And a lot of conversation, not not over years and years, but in a you know, there's a lot of push back because lawyers, A, aren't great investors. Law firms don't do this very well, right? You know that. I mean, it's like great advisors. You, yeah, and, and neither are we, by the way. I mean, this is, you know, we're, we're, we're early into the game in a way. We've been investing, but not successfully. I think the last 10 years we've got a bit better, but also because lawyers will question. So the good thing is you've got a hundred pains in the whatevers asking you awkward questions. So you better have answers. In general, if there's enough belief from the management team and the investment committee who said yes, then we go, but we don't go millions of times. There's a handful of businesses here. Yeah, it's as important to say no to an investment as it is to say yes to an investment. I presume you say no way more often than you say yes. We do. We do. And funnily enough, I've been on the no side many times because when people have come to us with ideas, and all I will say is the following. Now that I, I have a, a small stake in a pre-loved business, like the Real Real, I don't know if you've heard of the Real Real, and it's listed in, in the States. It's a pre-loved business, pre-loved clothes, fashion business. There's a tech play in there. I've had to go and raise money with my, I'm the small fund, the small shareholder against the two founders. Going to raise money is really horrible and really debilitating and humbling. Because it doesn't matter how quote unquote good you are, you get knocked back 99.9% of the time. And every great business tells the story of how they didn't get money and then someone gave them money. A lot of the people I interview say the same thing. So I'm much more empathetic to people coming, but saying yes is really hard. So we only, this other business I mentioned is called Kids Wear Collective and we just raised a quarter of a million pounds. Nothing, a lot, but nothing. So yeah, we say no a lot, but yeah, we also understand how hard it is for those people raising money. At the, the beauty of our lab, which is a tech incubator for legal services, focusing on that, we've got the market called Mishkondorea for it to be tested in, for it to be played in, for it to be working in. So we, we can see with our own eyes and our lawyers can tell us, does the market buy what it does or it doesn't? And we've made, we, you know, we have, we have an excellent return on the investments we've made. There's a handful of them and it's a, I, I love it when I learn new things. And when it, when I hear 8X and 10X, I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds better than 1X, where X is your return versus your investment. I'm like, yeah, this, this is good. Double figure sounds good. But we have made some very smart investments in a small number of technology businesses as well. That's great. Yeah, it's good. So I, I, I know we're running out of time, but if you've got just a couple more minutes, we have a lot of listeners in the States that may not be used to hearing conversation for a, a non-lawyer who's a partner in a law firm. Tell us a little bit. Perish the thought. <laughs> Perish the thought. Well, certainly some of our some of our states over here are doing their best they can to perish the thought. But what's the importance to you of being a partner in the law firm? It seems self-evident to me, but for our listeners, talk a little bit about what's important about that status within the organization and how that's worked for you. And sure. you've got other non-lawyers who are partners in your firm. 
So I'm, I'm going to answer it by not responding directly to the question for a moment. When I joined the firm in 2009, I didn't even think about becoming a partner. The business needed business professionals to help it become a better business. And it had, since 2008, decided, the partnership had decided it would invest in the house. It would invest in the infrastructure, whatever that meant, whether it was finance or people or technology or brand or sales, whatever you want to call it. And that business made a very good decision because what it said is we recognize this law firm is a business and we need to run it as a business. In doing that, it meant that those people that were brought in to help run the business were given the utmost respect and were deferred to because of their expertise. And one of the first things I was told before I joined the firm is there's nothing more a lawyer likes than an expert. When you think about it from a litigation, you get an expert witness in, you listen. You get a, the quantifying of the damages, you listen. You get some expert in looking at fair value for a, a business you're about to acquire, you listen. It's doctors, of course, lawyers listen to doctors, right? So there, there, there was that because they need to. They're all unhealthy. You've got to work less and play harder and play more, have more fun. But there was that, that from day one. So all I can say from a personal point of view is from day one, I was given the same level of res- as respect as anyone else. Ripple dissolved to 2017 and I'm in the interview with the, the, the board. And the question was, they asked me this question, why do you want to become a partner? I said, that isn't the question to ask me. The question to ask me is, why does someone who brings the expertise that I bring to this business, why should you be locking that person in? And then someone said to me, are you threatening us? It was my friend. I won't say who it was on the board. I said, of course I'm not. I said, what I'm saying is that if I was advising you, I would defensively be locking someone like me with my capability set into this business because in the coming years, brand as a differentiator in legal services is going to be critical increasingly so in the same way all the other key services are in a law firm because you're not going to be able to differentiate on service very much you're not going to be able to differentiate on tech you're not going to be able to differentiate on a whole bunch of stuff and in fact you can't today the only thing that encourages consideration to purchase is a strong brand so i said defensively for this business i advise you to lock someone like me in so the answer to the question is really, if you want to have a well-run business, which happens to be called a law firm, you need a bunch of people in it, a handful of people who are expert in what they do. One of those happens to be in the world of brand and sales and marketing. If you do that, then you're going to secure potential longer-term value and longer-term sweating of the asset called the law firm. And so the funny thing was that that they'd already bought it. I wouldn't have been in the room unless, you know, you know what this thing's like. When you when you bring someone in, you're like, this done. You, if you're having the interview, you've got to really screw it up because the partnership has already made a decision that it wants to embrace you, whoever you are, whether you're a, a tax lawyer or whether you're a, a brand expert. The really big difference, Stephen, was not so much that the respect that was given to me, which didn't change. It was how I felt about being a partner in the business. I'd been a shareholder in my last business and I really like skin in the game, not for wealth, not for self-aggrandizement, but because it matters. And when you wake up and it matters, you behave differently. I suddenly felt more responsible for my actions. I've always treated the money as if it was my money, but boy, it really is my money now. So if I'm putting another $100,000 into a campaign, I better believe that it's going to deliver a decent return. If I'm saying we should invest in the business, I better believe that's going to give us a return. So funnily enough, it was it's always a good idea in a business that's as developed in this, in this market, in the US market or here, to have someone that does what I do in your business that's really good. It's weird, though, that for me, I, I felt a different level of involvement. But it is a no-brainer. If you read a business book that says you don't need someone who understands your brand, then you haven't read the story of Procter & Gamble or of Apple or of Nike or of any, insert any name of any famous company. Because I always, I said this from day one, the soap makers didn't make Procter & Gamble famous. The investment in brand made Procter & Gamble famous and into the beer moth that they are today. And I hope that 
businesses understand the power that brand has. It sits on the balance sheet for CFOs. It sits on the balance sheet for potential investors. Law firms and lawyers who believe in experts need to just understand that those are, that's another form of expertise. It may be softer than understanding how to serve an injunction or how to fill in the 4,000 documents you need to fill in before you float a business. But that creativity inside of a business like the law is dynamite. Absolutely. Do you have time for two more quick questions? Of course. No problem. Great. One is, tell us a little bit about Mishkan Academy, which sounds fascinating. You guys do so many interesting things. This is just one of them. Yeah. And, and it goes it goes to bats again. They, everything comes back to your first question. What kind of law firm do we want to be? What kind of lawyers do we want to have? What kind of lawyers will do a great job? The kind of lawyers that will do a great job, we think, are lawyers that understand the wider world beyond the law. Of course, they have to be brilliant lawyers and understand what's going on in any any legal innovation and any changes to case law, whatever it might be. They have to be experts. That's a given. Of course, they have to have self personal management skills. They have to be good presenters. But beyond that, what distinguishes a really brilliant lawyer from a lawyer that you must have as your consigliere? We believe, and believe when we set this up in 2013, the Michigan Academy, that lawyers need to have open minds, open minds to the world of politics, to the world of economics, to what's going on in society. Lawyers that are tuned into that, lawyers that travel on public transport, especially the wealthier partners that in some jurisdictions don't. Lawyers that are connected to what's going on politically, to what our leaders are doing and what they aren't doing, that understand economics and how that impacts the clients that they are with, that understand societal shifts and the problems with climate or whatever it might be. That lawyers that understand those things are going to be better equipped to deliver brilliant advice because they have context. So our mission since 2013 is to help our lawyers understand the importance of having open minds, to educating them around not just black letter law and the law, not just those key business skills, not just business management skills, but also what's going on in politics, economics and society. And to that end, we've had the most incredible speakers that would be world class anywhere, not just the UK, come and talk to our lawyers and come and be part of it so that they can come out the other side and deliver better advice. We run 1500 courses a year. We're affiliated to a number of universities and, and educational establishments. We have this great stream of people that come through. We have fantastic trainers. We invest millions every year in making our lawyers better lawyers. And we think that's a real differentiator, differentiator to get the talent in, but differentiator obviously to then deliver better services to our clients, which at the end of the day, I was reading something about uh, an investor. What was his big learning? What was the big thing that someone told me ought to do? And he said, the big thing that I learned was never lose sight of the fact that the big thing is the big thing. Because when you lose sight of the fact that the big thing is the big thing, you're not focusing on the big thing. The big thing is brilliant lawyers that understand the world that can deliver great legal advice. Without that, Mishkondorea is nothing. We can talk about all the other great stuff, but I'm building off of that platform. I can't make up for the fact that if we didn't have it, the academy ensures that that substance of great lawyering is right there in the DNA of the firm. That's just awesome. As I said, you guys do so many cool things. Last topic for you is for 10 years, you've had this amazing podcast called Jazz Shapers. What was the origin of that and what have you learned from doing that? And tell our audience where they can find it. So Jazz Shapers is on Jazz FM, which is available on all your major podcast platforms, whichever one you may choose, whether it's Spotify or whether it's iTunes or probably a few others as well. And it's available at jazzfm.com, which is, of course, global, not local. And it's available on British Airways High Life and American Airlines, maybe. I think it's definitely BA, maybe Iberia. And it's a program where I interview founders of businesses. Found, and, and we've been doing it, as you said, since 2012. I think I've interviewed almost 500 now across that time. 
We've made films. We've been shortlisted for the best business podcast of the year. We've had live events. We've made books with kids trying to get into the, tra- the, the creative industries by them bringing to life visually some of the, the, the founders we've interviewed. All that stuff is fantastic. We get at least 30,000 listeners a week, which is a lot. But the reason why we did it, where did it come from? My then junior communications person received an email from someone from Jazz FM saying, hey there, I see you've created some digital TV channels, which we had done in 2010, which was a very rare thing to do then, not unusual now, content. It's all about content. They want to see if we want to advertise on Jazz FM. What do you think? That sounds like rubbish to me. I said, hold on a minute. Who listens to Jazz FM? Jazz FM is listened to by... People that listen to Radio 4, BBC Radio 4, half of them listen to Radio 4. Radio 4 in the UK is the preeminent station for news and for current affairs. And it's where my C-suite of potential clients and current clients and current referrers and potential referrers are. They are there. It's the program where the prime minister goes on and every other head of state and everything else happens. It's the biggest, most important station for that audience. You can't buy it because it's the BBC. It's not BBC World or whatever they call it now. So it started with, I like the look of Jazz FM. It then morphed into a conversation with, well, I don't want to advertise. That's lame. I want to do something interesting. I want to create something of value. What could we do? And the head of programming, I remember, he said, well, look, aren't jazz musicians just like entrepreneurs? Don't they kind of break the rules? Don't they kind of jam a bit? Don't they synthesize one idea with another? And I'm like, yeah, they kind of do. They're trailblazers. That's what jazz musicians are and always have been. It's what entrepreneurs are. We came up then with the idea that we don't call them entrepreneurs, we call them shapers. We then said, well, hold on, we can play music from the shapers of the world of jazz, soul and blues, and we can put alongside them their equivalent in the world of business, we'll call them business shapers. Suddenly, a bit like Barbara Streisand, a star was born, there it was, and we then had to say, how can we do this in a way which would be finessed and elegant and not gauche? Can we put in some advice from a Mishkondorea lawyer? Can we then build something, you know, how do we, how do we create this where it's calm and not flashy, because even though it may seem that Mishkondorea only you know, courts public opinion and public interest and stuff, it, it does, but not because we mean it to, because it's an outcome of the things we do. We found our tone, we found our pace, and that's how the program was born. And, and the reason I present it is not because I'm an egomaniac, or actually, is because I'd had radio experience before, I knew what I wanted for Mishkon, and I can divorce myself from me and I can be the product. And I also knew that interviewing people that were clients or not clients was good for business development, which it has proved to be on every metric, whether it's awareness building or whether it's salience, which is really important. What do we do? It's showing people that we are, we act for entrepreneurs without saying it. I don't need to say an advert. I don't need to make, put an ad together saying, at Mishkondria, we act for entrepreneurs, come use us. That's not great advertising, but it's enabled us to create something of value to the entrepreneur community, to the founder community, to the VC place, to the PE play, to some of the bankers. The listenership is absolute quality. And so that's, that's a, it's kind of, again, back to the, why would a law firm create a film about culture wars? Why would a law firm create a program, a radio program talking to entrepreneurs? It comes back to strategy. It comes back to positioning and it's delivering those in elegant, cool, interesting, unexpected ways, but totally rational, totally based in a foundation that says this will help build my business and my brand. Well, Elliot, thank you so much. This has been such a fascinating conversation and I'm looking forward to seeing what cool stuff you guys do next. Me too. I hope it's cool. It better be cool. We got to we got to keep being cool and keep being strategic. I mean, that's the key. You can be both. In fact, I I would I would proffer you need to be both. 
But listen, thanks, Stephen. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. It's funny. It's funny being on the other side. I always say, I don't, I don't, I don't say yes to many interviews. He says as if he's some kind of a lister when he's like not even a Z lister. But it's much easier asking the questions than it is answering them. But I hope I've fulfilled your requirements. Oh, more than that. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm so happy you said yes to our uh, invitation. Thank you, Elliot. Totally. Really nice to be asked. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.